That brings us to our um, consideration for today on the back of your bulletin. And this is from Kenneth Wiest out of his uh, commentary on pastoral epistles in the Greek New Testament. And it's about the qualifications for the prize. And he writes this, our word athletic athlete comes from the word athleo. Um, It was the Greek word for the act of contending in athletic contest. The crown the victor received was a wreath for his head woven of ivy, laurel, roses, oak, leaves, etc. But the victor does not receive it unless he has strived lawfully. That is, unless he has obeyed the regulations governing the contest. The Greek athlete was required to spend 10 months in preparatory training before the contest. During this time, he had to engage in the prescribed exercises and live a strictly separated life in regard to the ordinary and lawful pursuits of life. He was placed on a rigid diet. Should he break training rules, he would, in the words of the King James Version, be a castaway or disqualified, barred from engaging in the athletic contest. And Paul says this over in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not box like one beating the air. I beat my body daily to make it my slave, that after I've preached to others, I will not be disqualified for the prize. You have a lot of believers today, all they're doing is shadow boxing. You ever seen them doing shadow boxing? They're just beating the air. They're making no progress in life. They're just beating the air. You ever seen runners running in the race and there's no point to why they're running? They're just running aimlessly, right? There's no point. There's a lot of believers, and it doesn't appear to them now that there's consequences to it. They don't think that big big of a deal about it. But when we get to the Bema Seat Judgment, everybody who's a believer is going to be there. You're You're not going to hell. You're going to be saved. Everybody at the Bema Seat Judgment is going to be saved. But what's going to happen is there's these works that Don talked about that God has appointed for us to accomplish while we're in these bodies. Those who ran according to the way that he wanted this to happen, living by grace and accomplishing those good works, they're going to be rewarded at the Bema Seat Judgment. And those who didn't run, well, you know what he's going to say to those people that didn't run? Uh, they're, they're going to get a participation trophy. No. <laughs> No, he says, they're going to make it in, 1 Corinthians 3, only as by fire. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think they're going to make it in. He says, come on, you made it. That's going to be better than, that's going to be better than what's going to be said at the great white throne judgment, right? (laughs) That's not going to be said about anybody there, right? But, I mean, who runs a race and just want to just get by? I don't. Who runs, who participates in anything and you just want to just be a you just want to just make it just if I could just make it over the finish line I'm okay I've never felt that way I mean I've always wanted to do all that God what did Paul say all that God has laid hold for me to be able to accomplish shouldn't that be the goal of every believer I wonder what's what's going to look like when we get on the other side I don't think that at the Bema Seat Judgment we're going to be crying crocodile tears. I don't think it's going to be a purgatory. But I wonder what, would our, what will our mindset be when we see what the opportunities were that God had for us in this life. And we didn't really accomplish what we could have. I wonder about it. I don't think it's going to be a sad event. I don't think that you're going to be sitting there saying, Oh, I'm sorry, Lord. I would have, I would, let me go back. I'll do better. I don't think it's going to be that, but I'm wondering what is it going to be like? Well, we don't have to wonder because as long as we're breathing, we have the opportunity to do those things well-pleasing to the Father. And that makes a huge difference. When we come to this issue of love, we've been on it now for 14 weeks, and I think it's one of the most important um, topics in Scripture with regard to the believer today uh, because of the fact that agape love is a huge thing that brings the believers together. And so you talk about love, and we've talked about this topic, um, and you hear people talking about love today. And first of all, the unsafe man, as we've said, doesn't know what love is. And that's why Tina Turner made the song, What's Love Got to Do With It? They don't know what love is. <laughs> right? They have no idea what love is. 
And so most of what is being perpetuated for love today is nothing but erotic love, sexual love. That's basically majority of what love is being perpetuated in society is just sexual love. You do have some fondness for families, <coughs> that Sturgo love that we talked about where you have family love, but that's even waning, right? People don't even have love for the people in their own family, that natural affection that comes should come with the people in your own family. And then you have phileo, which is a fondness, a friendship kind of love, right? And how many people have that today, that they really trust people that you would call a friend, that you have an affection for? And so you have agape love, which is unique to believers. Unsafe men have not the ability to have agape love. It is the highest form of love that is in existence, and they can't have it. Why can they not have it? Because it comes as a result of Christ indwelling you. And the Holy Spirit producing that life, that love in your life. You and I can only access it if we live by grace. It's living by grace that causes us to be able to do it. And as we live by grace, this love is unlike anything that you will see in this life. It has the capacity to give beyond anything that is, would be imaginable for unsaved men. And we like to tell people as we do premarital counseling that when you love someone, it's really not 50-50. You know, the society <laughs> says that, and, the, and it's been that way in the, in the culture a lot, is that love is 50-50. No, it's not. It's not 50-50. It's really 100% zero, Right? And if you love someone, you're going to love them. It's not predicated on anything that they do, really. It's not predicated on what they do. And this is why a lot of your marriages have failed. I like what Sakat says. A lot of people are going down the aisle, and they're not marrying the person they're thinking about. They're not marrying the person in front of them. They're marrying some idea of what they expect that person is going to be down the line, right? And when they get down the line, and they, well, this is, this is just not working out for us. <laughs> This person has not who I thought they were. Oh, yeah, they are. I told my wife, you can't tell me that most of these people, as they're going down the aisle, they don't know who it is they're marrying. Give me a break. I refuse to believe that. What I think is happening most of the time is people are going down the aisle, and because they don't go through any kind of counseling, you send those, marriage, those wedding certificates out, you can find out anything you want about that person. This wedding's going down. That person could be an axe murderer. <laughs> this wedding's going, we've already had the certificates go out. Everybody knows. The invitations are going out. We've got this plan. We can't stop this wedding. This train, it's going, right? Love, agape love causes you, when you understand it's agape love, it gives you the ability to love someone selfishly, selflessly. Not selfishly. Selflessly. <laughs> That's the problem. Selflessly. <laughs> and so that's the, that's the phenomenon. That's what's phenomenal. And so here we come and we've been talking about the importance of agape love and how important it is to the body. And here we find in Philippians 2, Paul says something that's really interesting, that this agape love, yes, has the capability of providing consolation. Consolation to those with whom they are directing this agape love. Notice in Philippians 2, and we'll find out what consolation is. I guess I should do a survey and ask you, what is consolation? <laughs> you say, well, I don't know what it is, but I think I'm doing it. <laughs> Notice in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. And really you have some first class conditions here. And I would say since there be therefore a, any consolation or consolation in Christ, uh, since there is comfort from love, since there be fellowship of the spirit, since uh, bowels of mercies. But we want to zero in on this comfort from love. That word of, and I would really translate that from love. From love. And so it's really the word consolation. Consolation. 
And it, what's interesting is that there are several words that talks about how to comfort and encourage someone. This word consolation is really interesting because it's different from encouragement. It's different from parakaleo, which we understand, and it has a different um, uh, focus in and of itself. But you know what you're going to find when we look at this is that you see that love, God has provided through agape love for all kinds of situations. And that when you love someone, you are able to give them the very thing that they need at the time that they need it. And today you'll see that this consolation is a clear example of it. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to look at these things and grateful that as believers, we have the opportunity to be able to express the life of your son because of the fact that he indwells us. And as we are able to live by grace and in our position with whom the son has provided us to have a position, we would, we're able then to express this life as the Holy Spirit is able to manifest this life um, that is in us and outwardly. And part of that is agape love. And we're thankful, Father, for that provision. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And so there are several words in Scripture that is used for comfort uh, in the New Testament. And so we have parakaleo. Parakaleo is the main word that is used. And what we're going to find is this word that is used for, um, that we're talking about in Philippians is the word paramuthos. And it's, it's different. So some people ask and they wonder, well, why do you guys focus on the languages? Well, this is a clear example of it. Because you have several different words that talk about comfort. And as you see it translated into King James, you wouldn't understand what is being said here. I mean, you would lose the translation of what is actually being said. So here you have several words that is used for comfort in the New Testament. You have parakaleo, which we'll come back because we see this used with this word paramuthos uh, several times. But I would give it this definition. It's frequently used of encouragement uh, to come alongside of another believer for the purpose of lifting them up in order for them to all be what to be all that they need to be. And so when you love someone, you're so focused on what is happening with someone else is you'll come along someone aside of someone and you'll encourage them. Right. How are you going to do that through uh, this thing here? I, I keep pointing to that because this has become over the last two years, people have abandoned their role as believers and have totally focused on technology. You can't do that. You can't. You're not going to be able to encourage someone to paracolect or to come alongside of someone when all you're doing is watching something online. You're not going to be able to do that. Then you have this other word that is used, <coughs> anapucho, and it's a refreshment derived from a change in circumstances. That a believer can refresh, bring refreshment to another believer. Our believer can be refreshed because the circumstances have changed that were bad. Well, look at this. In 2 Timothy, we'll look at it. Paul is imprisoned, and he's talking to Timothy, and I really believe what's happening here. Timothy has given in to cowardice. Cowardice. We use this, uh, I think somebody once called it a, you become a Mr. Milk Toast. You have no spine. When the tough, the, the going gets tough, you run. <laughs> and Timothy had become that. Now, I'm not just making this up. It says it's right there in Scripture, 2 Timothy. And he would not go to see Paul. Paul was in prison. And I think that he had become ashamed of him. And notice what happens here. You find a guy walking to the pages of Scripture, and he wasn't ashamed of Paul. And by, by not being ashamed, he went and visited Paul, sought him out. And Paul says, he refreshed me. He refreshed me. Notice in 2 Timothy uh, chapter, uh, where we at? With chapter 1 and verse 16. <clears throat> the Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus. And there you go. Um, I think the baby's a girl, so that wouldn't work when the Onesiphorus, Okay. <laughs> I, <laughs> I just feel led to keep throwing things out there. Just <laughs> Anasiphorus. I mean, that's a unique name. He'd have the only name in class right there. <laughs> For he, oft, <laughs> he often refreshed me. And there's our word there. 
to, so here he came to Paul as Paul was imprisoned and he was able to refresh him. You're not going to do that through some technology. You're not going to do that being at a distance from people. That's not going to happen. He says, he refreshed me and he was not ashamed of my chain. Paul's in prison. I believe that what happened there in Ephesus is that these guys were telling Timothy, you're following that guy, Paul. He ain't nothing but a jailbird. Every time I turn around, he's in prison. This guy? This is the guy you think is, is that great of a guy? And I think Timothy became a coward. And I think he was ashamed of Paul. And so notice, he says, but when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and he found me. He refreshed him. He looked for him. And he found him. You see. And notice the Lord granting him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knoweth very well. You know, we can get to a place and, I, and you can see it with <laughs> Timothy. Paul had to tell him over there in the second chapter. And you see it in verse one. You be empowered by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There is an empowerment that you and I can get when we live the Christian life. We live in our position in Christ in which the Holy Spirit provides the ability, the invigoration for us to be able to meet whatever challenge God brings our way. Timothy, at that point, he was he was he was being a coward. Well, let me just not leave you with my opinion on it. Look at verse eight. He says, you stop being ashamed, therefore, of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to a power from God. You see, it's not your power. You try to muster up your own strength. It ain't going to be good enough. But God provides the power. I used to wonder all the time how these guys, and you read the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. How the, I, somebody asked me to borrow that once. They didn't finish it. They gave it back to me midway through. <laughs> they said, I can't take this. All you see is person after person after person who's suffering and dying because of what they believed. And they couldn't, they couldn't take it. They gave it back to me. Didn't finish the, the book. If you, you want to try to see if you can finish, I have it in my library. <laughs> you, can, you can use it if you want, want to. But here you have Paul. I mean, he, Timothy's ashamed of him. And notice in verse 7, he says, For God has not given us a spirit of cowardice. That word fear is not phobos. It's the word to be a coward. And so, uh, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. And so here, you, that word refreshment, it's different from parakaleo, and it's different from the word parathmuthos, which we're going to see. And then you have the word uh, paragoria, and it's the word comfort that comes from speech. So someone can say something to you and they could comfort you through their speech. There's something that is going on and they can bring comfort to you in their speech. And notice in Colossians 4.11. Excuse me. Colossians 4 and 11. <coughs> And so Paul writes to the church at Colossae, and he says um, in verse, uh, he's given some final admonitions. He says, um, verse 8, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose that he might know of your estate and comfort your hearts with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Aristarchus my fellow prisoner salutes you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom you've received commandments, if he comes unto you, receive him. And Jesus, which is also called Justice, who is of the circumcision, these are my fellow workers of the kingdom uh, of God, which have been a comfort unto me. And so in the context of that comfort, it comes as a result of some kind of uh, speech that is being made uh, known. So there's several words here that uh, has the idea of encouragement or comfort uh, that are used. But this paramuthos, 
Um, it's used about five or six times in the New Testament, and it's very interesting how it's used. The word comfort here is derived for paramuthos. Is it's funny. It's got it's a composition word, and it comes from two different words: para, which is on, alongside of a Greek preposition alongside of, and then muthos. It's really fascinating that it would be used this word muthos, right? Muthos is a word from that we get our English word myth from. A myth, and so I give you a couple of definitions of a muthos here. Out of the dictionary.com, it says muthos means a traditional or legendary story, usually concerning some being or hero or event with or without determinable basis of fact or natural explanation, especially one that is concerned with deities or demagogues and explains some practice, rite, or phenomenon uh, of nature. Uh, Kenneth Weiss defines it as fiction as opposed to fact. Now, I give it this definition. Stories that are based on truth, but the telling of which has been stretched beyond the reality of what is true. Now, somebody says that these, old, these Greek mythology, that if you go back in the Greek mythology, that it has derived it, that there is stored it off with a basis of really what was true. Uh, some people believe that back during the time um, with, uh, in Genesis 6, that some of this probably derived from that. You know, with some of the uh, uh, different kinds of creatures and people that you saw. And that as it was told over time, it became this big fable, right, this story. You take something that is true, and they've seen it, that this actually happens this way. If you tell, you ever seen that where they get someone in a line, and they tell the person at the beginning of the line uh, a fact, and by the time it gets down to the end of the line, it's completely different? I mean, that's what happens with gossip, Right. <laughs> and before you know it, you know, you say that somebody's in the hospital, and before you know it, they said that they died of age or something. You know, <laughs> it just changes as the story goes down, and, that, and many believe that this is what happened with Greek mythology. That the story changed, started off with something that was true. By the time it has gotten down through history, it's become this massive fable. Now, this, ironically, is what's happening in the church. That people are taking something that's stored it off as true, and they are twisting it to the degree that by the time it comes down to you, they've added so much to it, it's not even the real, it's not even the same story anymore. Notice in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I think that what they're doing that with is the Old Testament, as Don talked about this morning. They're taking Old Testament scripture and they're twisting it and mangling it to the point to where it's become nothing but a myth. A myth. And so notice Paul warned Timothy that in the last days of the church that these kind of things would happen. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom Preach the word. And we like to say that. Kruxtan Lagan. Herald the word with authority. With authority. It matters to me not how politically correct some people are. I don't care. I really don't care. Because you're not the one that I have to give an account to. Right? You're not the one that we're going to have to give an account to. And that's the world without involved in all this political correct mumble-jumble, right? <clears throat> Preach the word. Be instant in season when people like it and out of season, even when they don't. Correct, uh, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Now, I believe here that doctrine there is actually what Don was talking about this morning is this proper Old Testament doctrine. That's the problem. Do you know that the problem is not getting people to teach proper grace? It's getting them to stop taking the Old Testament and twisting it to make it something that is not true. That's the real problem today. For the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine or a healthy Old Testament doctrine. But after their own lust, they will keep to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto what? 
fables, myths. Now, I believe those myths have some basis in reality. I've set up and I've listened to people on the radios talk about the Old Testament, and by the time they got through with it, it was like, wow, I didn't even know that. It was, it was unrecognizable, what they said. They've taken things from the Old Testament and twisted them so much, they've, it's unrecognizable. It's no longer true. And so it's become nothing but a myth. It's what they've done. And so this word muthos has this ideal. Muthos actually had this ideal of myth. Now, in composition, you have these definitions that I give you that uh, how someone would uh, define this word. To address with soothing or cheering words to console or to appease. Um, Feiberg in his lexicon says, come to come close to someone's side and to speak in a friendly manner as rousing up someone's will about what ought to be done, to strengthen as rousing up hope for a good outcome of what happens in distinctions uh, from uh, paraclesis, which aims to arouse the will. And so here he says it's to arouse uh, the emotions. The other one, paracleo, is more an appeal to the will, which is interesting that he does that. And I think there's some truth to that, and we'll see that as we go through this. Notice in verse, and uh, my definition would be this, experiences expressed in words delivered with the intent to calm the emotions of one who is destabilized. You have somebody who's destabilized, and this this word is used as that you're, tr- you're exhorting them for the purpose of calming their emotions, you see. You're calming their emotions. They're either some event has happened to where they um, have some a death in a family or whether there's some calamity that has happened. <clears throat> And because you have agape love for them, and I really see in Philippians it springs from love, that you have the ability to exhort them in a way that calms the emotions of one. And so, uh, who is destabilized due to some event. Now let's look at this. So paramuthos is used with parakaleo on several different occasions, and let's use it. Parakaleo, and why do I say that? It's the word that we normally is used for exhorting somebody. It's normally used for exhorting somebody. So I think that as you look at these two words, you do see that parakaleo, you're more appealing to the will of someone. Hey, you ought to do this. Hey, man, this is the way you ought to see this. Where this word, I think you're dealing with someone and you'll see it when we start looking at it. Man, you ever had somebody, when my mother died, as an example, people would come to me and they would say, very, oh, I'm so sorry about your mother dying. And you know, all of those words rang hollow. I'm not, I'm not, I didn't want to diminish the words that they said. It really didn't, I, I appreciated them saying it. It did nothing for my emotions. Right. When you're in that emotional state, words don't really do it. They really don't do it. And so there is a a a a way that the believer, when he expresses agape love, that he's able to empathize with where that person is in an emotional state where their emotions might not be where they should be. Notice where these two words are used together. Look at 1 Corinthians 14.3. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, <clears throat> Paul was talking about the uh, proper use of uh, tongues, I mean, excuse me, of, uh, of uh, spiritual gifts. And notice he says in verse 1 of uh, chapter 14, he says, follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts. And so he says, I really pursue love. When's the last time? I hope you guys are pursuing agape love. I think the believers here are doing that. That you that that's a focus that you're directing agape love and how you relate to other believers. I, I would hope that that's the case and desire a spiritual gift, but rather that you may prophesy. 
Now, in the early church, prophecy was a temporary gift that was given in the early church, and it was something that was important during that time. Now, notice what he says in verse 2. For he that speaks in an unknown tongue speaks unto men, but un- uh, speaks not unto men, but unto God. For no man understands him, albeit in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he that speaks in prophecy speaks to men in edification uh, and uh, for exhortation and, really see that word comfort, it's actually for consolation. Consolation. This is an interesting thing. So there's two things happening here. There's exhortation and then there's consolation. Now I think here in this context, to me, as you see in Scripture, there is an element when you understand what God is doing, it really calms you. When you're in the midst of a situation like we are in today, as people look out at the world and say, ah, what's going on? <laughs> right? But when you know that God has it under control and you could bring your mind back to Scripture, it really comforts you. I mean, it's really, it could bring some, some uh, consolation <laughs> uh, to the point. I really believe that's what's happening there. Notice in 1 Thessalonians 2.11, you see it used again. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, we're going to come back here with 1 Thessalonians 2.11. Paul is talking about, <coughs> excuse me, Paul is talking about um, the Thessalonians and how he ministered to them. Now, I don't think he would have said this about the Corinthians. But he says here concerning them, verse 10, you are witnesses of God also how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believed. And you know how we exhorted you, there's the word preparacoleo, and comforted you and charged you, how? Every one of you as a father does his own children. Isn't that neat? I mean, I think I've certainly you could have fathers that do a lot of exhortation. Sometimes you have to come alongside of your kids and say, hey, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. And um, and so there's several different things that you can see with that. And so Paul says this is how he ministered among the Thessalonians. Notice um, you see that this love, agape love, produces this consolation. Let's go back over to Philippians and then we'll operate from there. Now, I believe here, as you see it used in Philippians, this would be more a, a um, means of the grammar where I would say that it, this is a source of where it comes from. Now, remember we told you before that I, this word of used many times in Scripture, but it translates a lot of different things, right? It translates a lot of different things. And so I would translate it here, from, from. Since there be, therefore, consolation, any consolation in Christ, since there is comfort, not of, but I would say from love, from love. And so love is the product that produces this. So notice this love produces consolation. Consolation is seen in the use of one's spiritual gifts. And so we just looked at that, that this prophesying, uh, prophesying in Scripture. Um, I know today, and we talked about it during the whole, uh, I, going through spiritual gifts. Uh, they say today that there's prophets today, but, and they, they're not really prophesying the future, but they're foretelling. Right? That's what they say that they do. But prophesying is used in Scripture only of being able to tell things that are going to happen in the future that no one knows about. So if you're a prophet, let's see your, your work. Tell me what's going to happen in the future. And then, in the Old Testament, if they didn't get it right 100% of the time, why? It didn't go well for them. <laughs> and so... Prophets, that's what a prophet does. And so in the early church, they had the early prophets, and they were foretelling coming, uh, coming events. And so the last word of the, the, the last uh, use of the word of, for prophet actually is in the chapter, First um, Corinthians chapter 14, as far as the church is concerned. It's used a couple of times in the book of Revelation. You don't really see it used a lot as the church transitioned into the New Testament church. Uh, prophesying produced also consolation, as we saw. Now, notice consolation is necessary in times of dire circumstances. And so we saw it there in, um, 
First Thessalonians 2.11, but let's look at John chapter 11. It's used in the Gospel of John a couple of times in chapter 11. Now, what's the occasion here for why it's used? Anybody remember what's happening in chapter 11? Right, it's used twice. Right, you have Lazarus is dead. We learn a lot from this, right? They They told the Lord that the one you love is sick. And he still stayed in the same place. Well, today they'd go and say, you better get on over here. Why why do you expect him to live? You know, and the Lord stayed there for a reason. He didn't go until after Lazarus had died. And so let's pick it up, if you will. We'll we'll start in, um, in, well, start in verse 1 and we'll read down through 11. Now, a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her, her sister Martha. And it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you loveth is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now I just wonder, just as an aside, now, if the Lord was around today, and you sent, and you were sick, and, and this was the response that you got. I mean, I wonder what you would say. <laughs> would you say, wait a minute, this sickness, get over here, right? I mean, sometimes, and I raise that question because we sometimes see the people and how they respond differently from how we would respond in this situation. And so notice they're very concerned about their brother. Notice in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha uh, and her sister and Lazarus. And when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, said he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. And his disciples said unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee there. And goeth thou thither again? And Jesus answered and said, there are, not, are, are there not twelve hours in the day? And if any man walk in the day, he stumbles not, because he sees the light of life, um, excuse me, the light of this world. But if any man walk in the night, he stumbles, because there is no night in him. These things said he, after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, uh, but I go that I may awake him, out of his sleep. Then said the disciples, Lord, if he sleeps, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake not of his, uh, Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking a rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them, plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I am not there. To the intent that you may believe, nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, don't be too hard on the disciples. They said some crazy stuff, really. We, but we have the, the ability to look back on it, right? And see, well, this is just nonsensical. But they, were not, they did not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them the way you and I do today. And so a lot of things they saw and they didn't understand what was going on in front of them. Verse 17, then when Jesus came, he found that he had, lain, he had lain in the grave for four days already. Now, Bethany was near unto Jerusalem, about uh, 15 furlongs off. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And that word comfort, it's in the middle voice. And I just thought it was fascinating. Why is this in the middle voice? You know what I think it is? It's, I really think they were doing it for themselves. I mean, there's, I think there was a lot of shows that were put on. You know, they, back in those days, they had professional mourners. And they would go to these places and they would do professional mourning. And they would cry out loud and, and do all of this stuff. But this idea of cons- consoling them, to console them. And this consolation is with someone who has suffered a loss... Their emotions are out of control. They're grieving. 
And I think at this point, they don't need me to come up to them and give them some theological explanation of why this happened. I think that what they need, and with this word, what's being used, is that there is more a comforting that is really meted out toward the soul. Now watch, we're going to see it here when we get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. <laughs> right? As it's, as it's used that way. Notice, you'll see it again down in verse 31, that uh, same word is used. And um, notice he says, Then the Jews, when they were with him, with her in the uh, house, comforted her when they saw that Mary, that she had rose up hastily and went out and followed her, saying, she goes to the grave to weep there. So here, this is a, this is a hard thing. They've lost their brother. And there was some consolation that was supposed to be meted out there. Some comfort. That's, you know, that's, I've always been very careful what I say to people when someone dies. I, I sometimes don't know what to say. Sometimes it's better just to shut up. You know, because you end up saying stuff that probably, eh, eh, maybe I shouldn't have said that, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just, you find people in emotional situations. And how do you deal with them? But there are things that I think that you can say as you're led by the Spirit that will actually comfort bring comfort to their souls in that situation. And notice here, in, uh, as we move over to 1 Thessalonians 5, now this is a very graphic illustration of it because you have a person here that is emotionally duressed. They're under emotional duress. And, and again, I, I, I'm going to say it again, and I, I continue to pound the pulpit about this, we have seeded uh, emotional behavior to the psychologists, many of whom are nutcases themselves. Okay, I said it. They're nutcases. And I'm not saying that just because I'm making it up. They themselves will tell you they have a psychologist themselves. This, this is craziness. But here you find, here, here is an emotional person. They're emotional. Well, I don't have to make it up. This is what scripture says. First Thessalonians 5.14. We exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Those who are out of line. So you have people who don't want to stay in step with the way that God has lined it up. And you say to this person, hey, you know what? You, you shouldn't be doing that. You ought not to do that. Warn them that are, um, uh, un, admonish them that are unruly. <clears throat> Comfort the feeble-minded. Comfort the feeble-minded. Why did he say that? Who is, what, what's a feeble-minded person? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> you have those people who are of little soul. Their emotions have overwhelmed them. They can't even think <coughs> rationally. They're not even able to get a, a grip on rational thought. And so this word is actually, it's the word uh, um, oligo uh, in combination with the word sukas. So the word for soul, man, that's, you want to do a word study that will really enrich you, it will take a lot of time, Study the word soul throughout the course of scripture. Now I'm going to tell you what you're going to find. Over in the Old Testament, the word, the use of soul, it, it, it occurs hundreds of times. And you'll find that those Old Testament saints were not able to control their emotions. They weren't. Not like you and I can today. You and I can uniquely possess our souls in such a way that our spirit is directing our emotions. So that means that we're not emotional, but the spirit is in control of the emotions. So here what you have is a person who's not in control of their emotions, and their emotions are overwhelming them. They're overwhelming them. So this word uh, oligo is used, it's, it's used of small in size, and it's used that way in, uh, for example, uh, Matthew seven fourteen, where it says, um, uh, well, it's not just a word, small. Let's get there. My memory fails me. <laughs> in in uh, Matthew 7 and verse 14, 
But straight is the uh, gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and very few find it. And so this idea of a small amount, uh, a little amount. And so it's used that way of size of a small amount. And then the word suke is the word sukas is used of soul. The soul is the seat of your emotions. It's the seat of your emotions. Now, there is a lot of words that are used that talks about uh, soul, and we'll see it. Now, I, I want to give you this first before the, uh, um, we get any, go any further. The word feeble-minded is um, defined um, by these people. Notice Lowell Nida defines it this way. Pertaining to or having limited or diminished motivation for the attainment of some goal, to be faint-hearted, to be discouraged, to lose heart. Oh, well, we, how would we describe them today? Well, maybe they're depressed. Or maybe they've got something that has happened to them. And, well, how do we deal with this? Well, you know the score. We've got some medication to put them on, and that'll help them. <coughs> right? And so notice, here's another definition of it. Of one who feels his resources are too small for a given situation. They are faint-hearted. They are discouraged. They're despondent. Right? Now, Scripture describes, so you have these people who their souls, they use little soul, but what's happening here is I think is that their souls are out of control. Their emotions are overwhelming them. And they don't know how to control them. You know the truth be told about it? A lot of the behavior that you, being, you see being displayed out in the world today is nothing but the sin nature. And a great much of it is the manipulation of the soul by the sin nature. Which will cause you to be a neurotic person. If you don't understand it. And what I really perceive to be happening is that all these people out there are manipulating them. These people, these poor people, taking their money and just manipulating them. It's all they're doing. You come to scripture, you can get that for free. We didn't charge you a thing there. Right there in the word of God. It's just really sad to me. And so here you see. Scripture defines or describes similar soul-related ailments that can derail a believer. And so you see the idea of fainting um, that is used uh, to become totally disheartened and thusly ready to give up. And so there are people who just want to give up. I can't take it anymore. I can't take it. Right? Well, the world has a description for them. Scripture has a description. You're faint-hearted. It's not the end of the world. Get it together, man. (laughs) Pull yourself together. Put yourself back in your position. Focus on what God has provided for you in Christ. It ain't that complicated. It really ain't. Wearied. Now, this is the one I wanted to focus on. And uh, Hebrews 12, and you'll see it again in James, this word for comno, it's the use of one who is wearied. And as a result of the weariness of some circumstance, they have become, they gradually lose one's motivation to accomplish a goal. They are just absolutely spent. I'm tired. I just can't do this anymore. I, you know, this is, scripture has so many yeah, I keep telling people, God doesn't tell the church how to do surgery on the knee. Sorry, Cindy. Doesn't tell us how to do heart surgery or surgery on the body. But what is the Bible, if it's but anything, a treatise on human behavior? My goodness. What, what are we doing here as the church? And so notice here, right here in Hebrews chapter 12, Paul says this. He says, wherefore, seeing that we are surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight 
and the sin which does easily beset us and let us run with patience the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy, really instead of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and what? Faint in your minds. And really, it's not in the minds there. It's not a mind term that's used there. You know what's better translated? You be wearied and faint in your souls. In your souls. There is nothing new under the sun. People have had emotional problems from the beginning of time. God has the solution to them. One of the things that you see for the believer is that when we agape love a believer who is having emotional difficulty, we can come alongside of them and we can use words that speak to where their emotional difficulty is to encourage them that they can get beyond this. Agape love matters. You're not going to be able to have that kind of thing on this tube here. You're not going to be able to do that from there. It actually takes contact with people. With people. Being in contact with you. Seeing what you're going through. Seeing the emotional difficulties that you have. You see. having discernment of the Holy Spirit of how to meet the need that you have. Love does that. It provides for the believer to meet the emotional needs of other saints who emotionally are not where they need to be. Agape love is huge. It's very important. It is important to the body, and it causes the body to be everything God wants it to be. So that when we go outside of those doors, what the world sees is they see a people that is built up and strong as a result of building each other up, strengthening each other, encouraging each other. And as a result of that, God's glorified. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to look at these things and grateful that as believers that we have all that we need to be able to bring glory to you, to be able to provide for each other as we are led by the Holy Spirit to use our gifts, to build each other up, to use the fruits of the Spirit, to help each other in the ways that we need it as part of the body. So thankful for the provisions you've given. No group of people have any reason to be as optimistic as we are as believers today. And we're so thankful for that optimism because it's, it's based upon what you've provided. And we're so thankful for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.